Welcome, lovers of music and life. Sound and Light is brought to you by the Vast Institute and Jim Cohen Sherpa. Our hosts, Jim Cohen and Michelle Sherman, both career leaders in design and human development areas, have created this series to inform, entertain, and educate you about the powerful influence of music in designing and leading happy, healthy lives. They sincerely believe that there is magic in the music. Today, they provide inspiration and strategy to leaders of all stripes, in their efforts to develop their business and brain trust by cultivating the invention of new ideas, concepts, and approaches in an enlightened and intentional manner. Our series highlights their journey and insights about the sustaining power of music and how it's tied to their personal lives, lives focused on creativity, imagination, and supporting the personal fulfillment of others. Welcome to Sound and Light. I'm Michelle Sherman. And I'm Jim Cohen. Welcome back to our dialogue. Great to have you with us again. For those of you that heard the first episode, which we called In the Beginning, we talked the last time about our earliest memories of music in our lives, how it shaped us, both from different perspectives, growing up in slightly different times, but in New York City, and those communal experiences of being in the heartbeat of the music and looking back at, at how those moments influenced the way we grew and how it shaped us were fundamental. So moving away from the beginning memories of music into adolescence with all of its kind of geekiness and spurts of growth and insight, thought we'd devote this show to kind of the middle period. So we're going to talk about adolescence, the times that we both discovered the music and discovered something new about ourselves. We thought we'd throw some themes on the table also, kind of to shape this discussion. One's about groups. Who did we hang with? What kind of tribes were we in? What kind of bands were we? We kind of talk about this in the context of the stuff we didn't know that we found out. Philosophy, what was bubbling up under the surface that guided the way we started to think? And word, this was the era of the kind of burgeoning of lyrics. What did they mean to us? So with all that said, I'm curious about these memories of adolescence for you. And, and what did you discover during that period about the music and about you? Thank you, Jim. It's great to see you again, Mr. Sound. <laughs> So thanks to everybody for being here. We so appreciated the feedback that we've been getting on the first episode, and now we're on to our adolescence. Thanks, Jim, because I am realizing that I just want to set a cultural moment. I grew up in the 1970s. That was my adolescence. Well, just 1967 to 1977, 1978. That was between the time I turned a teenager and the time I graduated from the university. So it was a really uh, rich time to be alive. And uh, in 1967, we had the Summer of Love. So all of these people who were concerned about uh, the draft and not wanting to go to the draft were standing up in a nonviolent way to resist the draft. And it was the nonviolent uh, resistance 
that we've talked about in some of our other episodes that inspired uh, the hippies. And so I was a little hippie. After the summer of love in 1967, my sister, as I said, went to NYU as an older hippie. There was Woodstock. And Woodstock was all about 500,000 people, a music festival of music and love and peace and love. And again, 500,000 young people got together and everybody got along. There was peace and harmony. It was an inspiration. This was when I was a young, young teenager. So that kind of was the cultural background. And then because of the war, there was a lot of resistance and standing up to what was going on. And music was the narrative that gave us guidance. So culturally, I would say that for myself, once we heard Woodstock, we knew that music was going to change the world because Jimi Hendrix was there doing the Star Spangled Banner with his teeth. <laughs> you know, it, it embodied everything that we wanted. I was not able to go because I was just 12, but I know people who did go and it was a, a phenomenal experience. I was a wild child in the 70s, and by that I mean my parents were middle-middle, as I said, middle-middle class. I was getting good grades, and so I was kind of left to my own devices to have fun and go out and do things that kids in uh, Brooklyn did, go into Manhattan. <laughs> we had a lot of experiences with music ourselves in that it was at my high school, Midwood High School, um, near Brooklyn College. Sure. We had sing every year. So every child got to sing and dance and get into a costume as a freshman, junior, senior, all of us, sophomore. And the sophomore class, my class, won sing, which was unheard of. And the reason we won sing is because we had the musical support of one of the best bands in Brooklyn, the T-H-E, the guys that I hung out with. That was before their other band, The The. <laughs> they were called T, uh, what is it, Tyrannosaurus uh, Hippopotamus Elephant. They just came up with the name. Uh, I'm sure it means something to them, but it was beautiful. And they led us to victory at Sing as juniors. And then they were the first people in 1973 at Midwood High School. They won the first Battle of the Bands. So Joe Messina and Seth Shulman and Andy Martinez and Ricky Galeskin and John Nero were our heroes because they were our rock heroes and we got to go hang out and play music with them and listen to them. And they were really wonderful young men, very inclusionary. They were very respectful. And we went to concerts together. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But it was the fact that music was the great equalizer, all the freaks, all the hippies, all the hitters. We all got together at 420 in high school. All I can say is that the music was there in a way culturally that gave us permission mm -hmm. to be ourselves, to be authentic. And I was absolutely blown away because, as I'll tell you in a little bit, the lyrics were the poetry that guided me. Right. Pete Townsend was my therapist. Tom Petty taught me about what men think. Aretha Franklin and Carol King were talking about respect for women. It was just a permission to really be yourself and the world was changing for the better. And violence was outmoded and there were better and more brilliant ways to accomplish things. Right. And that was, that was the cultural 
soup, the primordial soup within which my adolescence brewed. What about yours, Jim? Yeah, yeah. So these, this discussion could open up a whole bunch of other discussions, as you might imagine. So when I think about this time period, which for me is a little bit earlier, I graduated high school in 1967. And as a point of sort of reference and information, the high school I went to was called the High School of Music and Art, which now exists as the LaGuardia School of the Arts. It merged with the High School of Performing Arts. Now, these are public high schools and really rigorous to get into. You know, it was a big deal. And I was an art student. The art students, of course, all played music and the music students went to go see the art students in rock bands. The music students were really proficient. So when you talk about this era for me, a couple of things come up. One is that high school experience because I really went to school with talented musicians who later went on to become rather famous jazz musicians, rock musicians sometimes, but a lot of classical musicians as well. And so every year they would have a concert at the school called the semi-annual, which was a big deal. And the students would play and we had a full orchestra and choir. And it was a phenomenal experience of seeing young people with the courage to get up there and bear their souls in music. So that's a reference point that I, I come back to a lot in creating new things for people. You, courage is, is an important component of, of this mix not to be forgotten. Going back a little further for me is also a transition. We talked last time about the, this folk music era that I grew up in and, and how it, it moved from one traditional folk music to sort of modern folk music embodied by people like the Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul and Mary. But sneaking in there was Bob Dylan. And we remember- With that amazingly unique voice. Right, which he kind of copped from Woody Guthrie. And so- We knew who was singing. Right. And, and people thought, oh, that guy's got a weird voice. We don't want to listen to him, but we will listen to Peter, Paul, and Mary sing Blowing in the Wind. But in that moment, the game changed. The lyrics actually meant something, and it was extraordinarily powerful. And within a short time, by January of 1964, the Beatles are on Ed Sullivan. And the folkies go, whoa. This is a lot more powerful. It looks like a lot more fun. They kind of dress cool and all the girls are after them. So many of us folk musicians start to become rock musicians. And I've said this before, but you know, the world kind of went from black and white to technicolor that day when the Beatles showed up. And so a lot of my adolescence was spent in and around rock and roll music and traveling from Lower East Side to Harlem to go to high school. So you get all this stuff in your head and, and, and in, your, in your ears. A part of that transition was taking banjo lessons at the very beginning of this at a place called the Noah Wolf School of Folk Music on West 48th Street. And aside from my taking banjo lessons, the people that were hanging around that building went on to unbelievable careers and they were just sort of people that I would run into. So I took banjo lessons from this guy named Happy Traum who's gone on to recording and having, uh, I think, a band with his brother, Artie, mm -hmm. for many years, lives in Woodstock, but he was a good friend of Dylan's. And consequently, hanging around this building were people 
that went on to form The Love and Spoonful, The Mamas and the Papas, and The Blues Project. Danny Kalb was there all the time. Al Cooper was there all the time. Fast forward, rock and roll comes along, and suddenly they're no longer really folk musicians. They birthed The Love and Spoonful and, and The Blues Project. The truth is that was because the chicks liked rock and roll a little bit more than folk music. No, they liked them both, but they thought they'd get the girls. I know that's it was why definitely they went about the girls. <laughs> and the clothes, right. and the guitars. I love it. Right. So there's all this stuff going on, and it's really churned up a lot. Me and my buddies play music, are in bands, and are art students and stuff. Mm-hmm. And we spend endless hours roaming the streets of Greenwich Village, just kind of listening and trying to buy records, the latest things from England. And so there's a great story woven into this that's worth telling. Fast forward to like 1967, the year I graduated high school, also the summer that they, the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper. That sounded like something from a completely different universe. Mm-hmm. Listening to it today doesn't make a lot of sense for the first time because you can't really appreciate how different the thing is when it showed up the first time. We were starved for listening to British music. And there's this guy on the radio who starts the, an FM rock station very early in the whole birth of, this, I think it was stereo also, W-O-R-F-M. Mm-hmm. And the guy's name is Murray Kaufman, but he calls himself Murray the K. And for a long time, Murray Kaufman called himself the fifth Beatle. And somehow the Beatles tolerated having him around because he was a New York DJ and they knew he'd play their stuff. So after the first year that WRFM is on the air, they decide to hold a birthday party for the station as a concert series at what was then the RKO 58th. 58th. Mm-hmm. Yeah, familiar right with it. Mm-hmm. Bloomingdale's. And so... <laughs> familiar with okay, that too. Right. And so Murray the K in, in the 50s and early 60s used to host these soul reviews at the Brooklyn Fox Theater with lots of great soul acts. And here's the drill. They would, each band would come on and play three songs and it would start at noon and end at midnight. You know, and the poor bands were like waiting around all day to come back on stage to do three songs and leave. They never do a full set. So he fashions this new thing with rock bands using that framework. Everybody comes on and plays three songs. Okay, so we hear about this on the radio and who's on the bill? The Who is on the bill. It's the first appearance of The Who in America. Mm -hmm. The other band that's on, that they wrote up in the ad, it actually says The Cream. It's Cream. Also on the bill, Wilson Pickett, The Blues Project, Simon and Garfunkel, this crazy thing. They had Queens involved. Are you kidding me? Simon and Garfunkel from Queens, not another borough. Okay. Exactly. It was a big stretch. (laughs) So my brother had this friend who is a comedian who is part of a troupe called the Hardly Worth It Players. His name was Billy Minken. Wherever you are, Billy Minken, hats off to you, man. It turns out that he and his troupe are put on the bill of this concert series. We know him. We're clamoring to see this thing. And it's on for a week, by the way. So they're playing like all day for a week. Cream and the who on the same bill? What? Okay. Billy gets on the bill. Who does he share his dressing room with? The who. We get invited to come see Billy and go backstage uh-huh. and hang out with them. So it's a long way of getting to 
I met The Who and Cream. Wilson Pickett, Buddy Miles happened to be Wilson Pickett's drummer at the time. This was before they started the electric flag and all that stuff. And we spent days hanging out with these people with vivid memories of talking to them and how young we all were and how breakthrough they were. Mm -hmm. Especially the British bands who were just like, looked like they were, came out of a completely different universe. Pivotal to me in, again, that sort of moment where you know something's changing, like you had at Woodstock, where the world shifted dramatically, the music sounded different, and everything just tilted off slightly to a new place that felt free and highly creative and energized. Beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, Peter Townsend, I've done a little studying on him. He found Sai Baba. He follows very beautiful spiritual presence. Mm -hmm. And very early on, he said, you know what? I think there's more here than just making money. It started bringing his spirituality into it. I know the Beatles going and, and sitting with the Maharaji and, you know, being able to sit and talk with people who had a spiritual bent because they realized the money and the fame and the record industry, everything that was offering them was not enough. Pushing back on that, plus the resistance we were talking about with the war. Peter Townsend was my first therapist. And I hmm. just want to bring that up because the fact that you sat and talked with them and you were engaged in such deep conversations with him and Eric Clapton and other people did not surprise me. Tommy was about one of the most real and he wanted to do an opera, and he did it. And it was one of the most real portrayals of dysfunctional families I'd ever heard. And other people had crumb-bummy moments with their families. It was like, yay! In that boldness to talk about war, about people coming back, about affairs, about child abuse, about the fact that, you know, we go through trauma and we shut down. You know, and all we want to do, I mean, it was brilliantly portrayed. It was very helpful to me. And then with Quadrophenia, when he, t he starts out realizing he's not crazy, he has a brain chemistry moment because it's, it's in his family. And then he realizes he can integrate. I'm one. And then love rain or me. So there were arcs to Peter's work and Roger and, and Keith and, and, you know, all of them, their work that was inspiring beyond what was ever there. And then us and them, it was kind of like, wait a second, I know that we're being played because we don't have much influence or power in our society. But those songs, those lyrics, that poetry that Peter, that Roger Waters, that uh, even Tom Petty, Refugee, those things truly were opportunities to realize I'm not the nutty one. There are other people in the world and the British bands, God bless them. They started with blues and rock. They studied it and they improved on it and they respected it. So what they brought to us was not here before. They took the best of what we had and improved on it and then sent it back to us because they all wanted to be Jimi Hendrix. He had his own story going on. The, I think what's interesting is about the notion of adolescence and our adolescence and, and theirs too, because they were so young. They were, when they started out in America, they were in their early twenties. And so were lots of other folk, you know, that, that started burgeoning in that era. So as, as a young man in that period, you can relate to these guys. 
Like, wait, they're singing about the stuff I'm going through too. You find a little light in there, a little light in, in what they're saying. It feels like my life and you're singing about my life and that makes my life feel more relevant. Especially as a creative person, when you hear people like Pete Townsend talk, you know, singing about the angst in his life, but you also know he's a pretty brilliant musician and he's a great lyricist, as dynamic a figure on stage as you can even begin to imagine. Are you aware that they came up with the rock? He wanted to write an opera. Nobody had really done a rock opera and they put it together because it was, they couldn't figure out how to be sustainable and how to make money. But they realized if they did something different, perhaps they could sustain themselves and do the show over and over again instead of having to come out with a top hit every three minutes, which is the way the business had been going previously to Sgt. Pepper, to to the theme albums. Right. And and so they were quite amazing. I, I also want to just say that Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton are two of my favorite guitarists. There are many of them. But when you hear the riff that Jimmy did in All Along the Watchtower, that is epic. And also, you know, while my guitar gently weeps and you find out the backstory that Eric and Patty were having a, a relationship and, and while they were writing these songs and working together, <laughs> you know, George's wife was visiting with, with Eric uh, by their own admission and consent at the time. They all were very clean about it from what I have read, uh, you realize that these songs have so much more to them than just the lyrics or the one hit wonder. There's something underneath it. Listening to those guitar riffs was my first foray into the power of resonance. Yeah. I was like, I got it when I heard those riffs and that that was a way to really truly connect with your soul, the divine self, Right. It was just absolutely your heart opened up. Well, there was a deep connection in the sound. And Jimmy, so we sort of watched him because before he went to England to become Jimi Hendrix, the band was Jimmy James and the Blue Flames at the Cafe Watt, where they passed the hat. And so we crawled through those clubs all the time because that's where we walked almost every day. Watching that moment when he disappeared. And then I think the first concert he played was at Hunter College with the Soft Machine. And we went. He came back to New York from England as the Jimi Hendrix experience. He was gone like, I don't know, six to nine months and came back this whole fully bloomed rock star. Mm -hmm. He's always had the chops, but it was an amazing thing to see. And it was due to Chaz Chandler finding him because the animals were playing at the club on Bleecker Street. Village Gate. The Village Gate. Mm -hmm. And stopped in to see him and went, wait, you, and took him back to England and his life changed. So again, the life lesson for young folk were like, wait, you could really go somewhere doing this stuff. Isn't it true, Jim, that Mick Jagger has a, an advanced degree in economics and went to his friends and said, hey, listen, guys, he met them in college. Keith Richards is a friend from when he was a kid, said, we can make a lot more money playing rock and roll. And they all said, you've got to be crazy. And he said, let's try it. Again, it's back to that like creativity, courage, mm -hmm. and wanting to express yourself. As I said, we, we crawled around the clubs. We found ourselves at the Cafe Agogo a lot. 
Primarily because, well, we weren't drinking age. Of course, in New York City, drinking age didn't really was when you could afford to pay for the drink. <laughs> Whenever <laughs> never you looked slightly old enough so that they could give you a beer. So we hung out at the Cafe Go Go, and we were blessed, privileged to see people in a tiny environment, including cream, that were it was just like stellar and mind blowing. And so. One of the things about it is the learning about experiential learning, like the phenomenon of playing music in a small club loud to a small group of people, and the intensity of that is Excuse also. Excuse me, what are you saying? I can't hear you. I was at that concert. There is that problem, and then along comes the Fillmore East, and get it even gets better. <laughs> yeah. I love it. You know, you're talking about the intimacy, and I love what you're saying about being in the middle of it. I, on the other hand, was blessed to meet D.B. Winward. He was a friend of my sister's boyfriend's roommate. So I got to meet him. I got to meet George Carlin and the comedy thing came really part of the underground scene. Got to meet a few other people. But what was most exciting to me was getting into some of these concerts. It was like a, a badge of honor. The ones that you're talking about were so uh, cool and so um, available to those who were in the know. If you were in the right place at the right time, you knew the right people, you knew where to show up. That's the way New York works. <laughs> you get invited and you can bring two friends and it's okay, but talk to the bouncer and mention Jim's name. Right. And I always got into the clubs. I always got into where I wanted to go because they like a pretty girl with a smile. And I, whereas a lot of people <laughs> could never get in. So getting into concerts was part of the thing that I had to go through was being able to get the tickets and all of it. And we were going to Jethro Tull. My father got us the tickets. I, I don't know if I'd mentioned this in, in an earlier episode, but there were no tickets left. And he said, listen, let me show you how it's done. We went to Madison Square Garden. And we went to see them, I believe, on in December of 1972. And they had released Thick as a Brick and Living in the Past. And so it was really big news. And there were no tickets left. But I did get to go with my posse, Roberta, Julie, and Lori, because my father gave them a $100 bill. And they found four seats for us after it was sold out at the ticket booth at Madison Square Garden. We get there the day of, we're on the floor, and there are those little folding chairs, and there were four extra little folding chairs. <laughs> we had the best seats. We saw right down the aisle. It was great. So I, I got into those kinds of concerts, but then there were concerts that you didn't realize were going to be so pivotal. I know, uh, as we had talked about earlier with Woodstock, I was at Winterland in I love the Grateful Dead. During high school, again, let's get back to the cultural thing. I tell this to my daughter so I can say it to you. In the 1970s, we believed sex was safe and drugs were okay. Wait, this is the perfect spot to take a break, have a sip of something refreshing, as we invite you to return for episode three to hear more about how Jim and Michelle navigate the naughty 70s. Thank you for spending time with us on Sound and Light. We hope this episode has entertained and inspired your creative side. For more information about Michelle and Jim, their backgrounds, stories, and the music that fills their lives, visit Michelle at vastinstitute.com and Jim at jimcohensherpa.com. Until next time, enjoy the music in your lives, be well, stay safe, and feel free to reach out to us.